Hello, hello. This is Kathy Colas Audiobooks, and today we have episode two of Operation Arrow Fletcher by James Burns. Carly comes out of hypnosis terrified. She's starting to wonder if Dr. Slovak is really who he says he is. Carly's best friend, Megan Connor, tries to help her figure out what happened in the session with Hayes and Slovak. Here we go. Carly lay on the leather couch without opening her eyes. She was aware of her arms stretched along her sides, and she unclenched her fists to relax her hands. Dr. Slovak watched as she took slow breaths and low murmurs came from her throat. He was very aware of the distress in Carly's face and waited until he felt that she had gained control of her emotions and would be able to talk without difficulty. He gently inquired, What did you see? Carly pressed her lips together. It had been a long time since she had seen that day so clearly. God, she gasped. I was back at the playground in Germany on the day that my brother drowned. There were uniformed men and women frantically searching up and down through the marsh. I heard the roar of the helicopter and felt the downdraft of the blades. Carly paused for a moment. That day was one of the worst in my life. I'll never forget how my mother looked, eyes red from crying and her white, chalky face. That entire afternoon, she aimlessly wandered like a zombie, looking for any sign of Artie. Night came, and there was still no sign. Carly sat up on the couch and reached for the necklace around her neck. Opening it, she revealed its contents. He was a wonderful brother, and I loved him. Both doctors gazed at the picture of a young boy with brown hair, broad smile, and freckles. He was my baby doll, Carly said, closing the locket. Baby doll? Dr. Slovak asked. Carly smiled and sighed. One afternoon, my father made a rare midday visit. He said it was sizzling out and to go get our suits. We were going to the pool. Artie came running from my bedroom. I had him dressed in my Patty Play Pal clothes. She was my favorite doll. Even the black patent leather shoes fit him. Not pleased, my dad told me that Artie was not a doll, and if I wanted to play dress-up, find some G.I. Joe military fatigues. He was only two at the time. I called him my baby doll until he got old enough to complain about it. This is the last picture I have of my baby brother. I keep him close to my heart, and I never take it off, she said, her voice breaking. It was my job to watch him, and I failed. Lying back on the couch, she closed her eyes, then quickly opened them. A thought had quietly entered her mind, grabbing her attention, forcing her to consider it. In all the years that passed, why had she not seen this before? 
mind jumping from one thought to another, she murmured, Kidnapped. Drowned. Killed. Mr. Itadirtum. Dr. Hayes slightly tensed in his chair, edging forward, listening with great attention as Carly rambled and struggled to get her thoughts together. Murdered? Kidnapped. Mr. Itadirtum? asked Dr. Slovak. What are you talking about? Carly furrowed her brows, straining to remember what she had seen at the park. The image became clearer. When I first tried to follow Artie, I was struggling to walk. I remember this sucking sound as my feet pushed through that mud. I began to step into the tracks to make it easier to walk. There was only one set of large tracks, she blurted, raising her voice. I'm not following. What does it have to do with Artie? Slovak asked. Carly kept talking, more to herself than to Dr. Slovak. Don't you see? I was walking in tracks in the mud that were much bigger than mine. My feet fit inside them. Artie's prints would have been much smaller. Carly's eyes suddenly widened. Someone else was there. Someone was carrying Artie. What if some son of a bitch killed my brother? Her voice rising with every word. He needed to ask for Mr. Etadertum. Dr. Slovak raised his eyebrows. Who is Mr. Etadertum? It was the password. My dad was a high-ranking military officer and very busy. He would at times send a driver to pick us up if he was running late. Sometimes we would be driven to the officer's club where we'd meet him. Other times we'd just be driven home. We were taught if a driver showed up that we'd never met before to ask for the password. My dad would have told the driver the password. If he didn't know it, we wouldn't go with him. Sometimes he would purposely send a driver we never met just to test us. He drilled that name into our heads with this silly rhyming song. E is for education. You can never get enough. T is for training. If you want to get buff. A is for active and staying alert. You know, it spells out his last name. Itadertum. That's so weird. Haven't thought about that in years. Dr. Hayes sat back in his chair. Did you get the feeling that your father was paranoid? Well, now that I think about it, after Artie died, I was never alone in public. It was at the same time my father started taking me to the gun range. We would go super early in the morning, and if anyone else was at the range, we would leave. Carly, in all our talks, you never mentioned shooting a gun, Dr. Hayes said skeptically. You think I'm delusional again, Carly snapped, surprising Dr. Hayes. I'll prove it to you. I know how to shoot a gun. Getting up from the couch, Carly clutched both hands in front of her as if holding a gun. She bent her knees, keeping her weight in the front of her stance all the while, aiming her index finger out the window. Looking at the doctors, she explained how to fire. Weight has to be forward or the kick of the recoil will push you back on your feet. Aim the bead at your target 
and squeeze your finger lightly, never jerking the trigger. Two quick pops, never one. Carly sat back on the couch, then continued. The gun was kept in a silver metal case with a combination lock built in. I would see my dad leaving from time to time with the case, but never knew what was in it. When we went to the range and he opened it, I realized it was a pistol. We would place sponge earplugs in our ears, load the gun, and practice. Did you ask your dad why he was teaching you to shoot? Dr. Hayes asked. Yeah, I did. He said, you never know in life when you need to protect yourself. Ninety-nine percent you'll never use it, but if that one percent rears its ugly head, put a bullet in it. So, he taught you to use a gun shortly after your brother died, and you were never alone in public, Slovak pressed. Yes, Ahmed had to be with me wherever I went. And who is Ahmed? Ahmed was like my older brother. He was a 22-year-old intern doing his residency at my father's medical facility. A faint smile crossed Carly's tear-stained face. He always made me laugh. He was one of those guys who was so witty. Once I told him I was cold, and he told me to stand in the corner because it's always 90 degrees there. Things like that. Ahmed stayed with us so much that I really did think of him as my older brother. Carly paused. I was curious, though, how he ever got his residency work completed because he spent so much time with me and my folks. I just figured my dad was the boss, and that was that. What kind of rapport did Ahmed have with your father? Slovak inquired. It was kind of odd. It seemed more like military protocol than of resident and attending physician. Why do you say that? Well, for one thing, he was always saying, yes, sir, and no, sir. Ahmed wasn't in the service. And another thing, he would come over at all times of the day and night to talk with my dad. It would be like ten minutes or so, and then he would take off. Always wondered what he was telling him. What time do you remember him coming over? I remember one summer night, or should I say morning, when Ahmed just dropped by. It was sometime after three, and I was up because my back hurt, and I had terrible stomach pains. I heard my father get up and walk down the stairs and out the door. When I looked up, I saw him talking to Ahmed. I didn't feel good, so I didn't think much about it and lay back in bed. Hmm, that's interesting, Dr. Slovak said. Not sure why a resident would come so early to your home to speak with your father, when I'm sure there was an attending physician on duty. It all changed, though, when he was killed. Killed? Ahmed was killed? In a car accident. Or at least that's what my parents told me. I really don't know how he died. Like I said, he was part of the family. Carly's eyes began tearing up. It was almost too much to handle. It had been less than a year that we lost Artie. I'm sure the funeral was difficult to endure so soon after losing Artie. With a quizzical look, Carly continued. There was no funeral or memorial. 
When I brought it up to my parents, they said his service was where he grew up, hundreds of miles away. You would have thought they would have done something, you know, like go to the funeral. You would have thought, Dr. Slovak agreed. Anyway, I visited my father at the hospital one day and saw Ahmed's car parked in the lot. I know it was his because hanging on the mirror was a cross. I gave it to him one Christmas. He was a Christian. When I told my dad what I had seen, he said I was mistaken, and that couldn't have been his car. By the time I left, the car was gone. Why then did you specify a car accident? My mother. I specifically remember her saying that Ahmed was in a car accident. I left it at that and just figured she had made a mistake or that I misunderstood her. Slovak turned and looked at Dr. Hayes, then back at Carly. I think our first session went very well. Let's end it here. I am pleased with the progress we have made. I think it's best that we continue day after tomorrow and start where we left off. It's good to give the mind a rest. Carly nodded as memories of that day brought back feelings she had suppressed for years. With her stomach in knots and her body numb, she rose from the couch and walked to the waiting room. The doctors followed her. Turning to them, she asked, Could Artie really have been murdered? We can't be sure, Carly, Dr. Hayes said. We'll talk more. Totally consumed with her thoughts, Carly left the office. Standing outside the elevator, she pushed the lobby button and waited. Several seconds passed before she heard someone else approaching. It was Dr. Slovak. Motioning with a raised hand to hold the door, he walked briskly toward her. Thank you. You miss this elevator and you lose five minutes. I hate waiting for anything. The elevator was empty except for the two of them. The annoying sounds of metal rubbing against metal could be heard as the elevator made its way down. They really need to do something with this elevator. I feel like it could be a death drop at any given moment, Dr. Slovak commented. Carly smiled and reached inside her parka, feeling for her phone. I can't find my phone, she told Dr. Slovak. I had it when I came here. It must have dropped out of my pocket. I have to backtrack. The elevator chimed, announcing the lobby floor. The door began to open, then quickly jerked shut. Slovak pushed the button for the lobby. Nothing happened. I hate it when this happens, he moaned, jabbing his thumb furiously into the open door button. With open palm, Slovak slapped the door. Carly jumped. Should we try the emergency phone? she asked. Ignoring her, he continued to jam his thumb into the lobby button. Carly heard the chime and the door opened. Slovak quickly stepped out of the elevator. Are you all right, Dr. Slovak? I'm fine, Slovak said, wiping his brow with the sleeve. See you in a couple of days. The doors of the elevator closed, and Carly felt the upward motion lifting her to the second floor. Hope this thing opens up. She was relieved when the doors burst open without a hitch. 
Carly entered the waiting room and saw her phone lying on the carpet under the coat rack. She put the phone in her pocket, and she was almost out of the office when she heard Dr. Hayes either doing dictation or talking with someone from his back office. No, she has no clue. She just relived the memories of the death of her brother and now suspects he may have been murdered. Dr. Hayes paused, listening to someone at the other end of the phone. No, she has no idea we know her brother was murdered. Slovak is a pro. He played along as if he was surprised. We're doing another session day after tomorrow. This kind of thing takes time. We are right on schedule. Oh my God, how could they know? How could they know Artie was murdered? Carly thought as she lifted the scarf over her cheeks and ran back across campus. Entering the cafeteria through a side door of the hospital, she noticed friends sitting at a table, motioning for her to come and join them. I can't, she mouthed from afar, heading directly to her dorm. Throwing her parka and scarf on the bed, she headed straight to her bedside drawer and removed a pen and notebook. Hands still numb from the walk, Carly rubbed them vigorously until the sting of the outside cold had waned and the feeling in her hands came back. She then proceeded to scribble what she heard in Dr. Hayes's office. Feeling frustrated, she tossed her notebook to the floor. I need Megan to help me sort through this. Megan Connor, Carly's closest friend at Holy Oaks, was her confidant. The events of Megan's troubled life began, she explained to Carly, with the murder-suicide of her father at the hands of her mother. With her only living relative, a distant aunt, she went to live with her. From the outside, Lynn and Thomas Brock seemed like a God-fearing, church-going couple. Having no children of their own, they told the congregation about Megan coming to live with them and how the good Lord had brought them a child to love and raise. Psychosis ran in the Connor family, and Aunt Lynn was no exception. Blaming Megan for the death of her brother, she set out to cleanse her. The good Lord came to me in a dream, Lynn told her. He revealed that I am the instrument to remove the evil that lives inside you. God will set you free. At first, the talks with God, as they put it, only involved Uncle Tom. He would undress 14-year-old Megan and make her kneel at the foot of his bed. She would pray and repent. Each cleansing would end with Megan remaining on her knees while Uncle Tom stood in front of her, untying his terrycloth robe. Later, Aunt Lynn became part of the cleansing. With Uncle Tom gone and Aunt Lynn napping, Megan told Carly she crept into her aunt's bedroom. Three quick blows to the head turned the white sheets red. Her state-appointed lawyer argued that she had been physically and sexually abused and feared for her life. If she wanted to kill her aunt, she would have used an axe, not a baseball bat. Megan Renee Connor was convicted of attempted murder and sent into the juvenile judicial system. Her severe depression and unstable mental health led to a life of being in and out of state hospitals. 
At the age of 21, she was placed in the adult treatment facility at Holy Oaks. With intense therapy and the proper medication, Megan felt she was making real progress. Megan's phone rang. One time. Two times. Three times. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone, Carly thought. Come on, Megan, answer the phone. The phone rang the fourth time before Megan answered. What's up? Why didn't you join us for lunch? You've got to come here right away, Carly said with urgency. I mean, I need you to come here now. I can't wait. And don't tell anyone else why you have to leave. Okay. Okay. Megan said in a low, muffled voice. I'm coming right now. Just get here as fast as you can. I'll explain everything. Megan stood up looking a little worried grabbed her half-empty lunch tray, and slid out of the booth. What's going on, Megan? Finish your lunch, one of the girls insisted. Marcia reminded me that I was supposed to meet her in the chapel. You know, for Bible study. It totally slipped my mind. I gotta run. See you tomorrow, Megan lied. Knocking on the door and entering at the same time, Megan rushed in to see Carly frazzled, sitting at the table and frantically writing. She grabbed both of Carly's hands. Stop. Breathe. Chill. You called me. What's going on? I... I think he was murdered, and both Hayes and Slovak knew about it. With a creased forehead, Megan looked at Carly and said, What? Slow down. What are you talking about? Who was murdered? Artie. I think Artie was murdered. Yes. Yes, she said, nodding her head. My little brother didn't drown. He was killed. Damn, girl, you're rambling. Megan pulled out a kitchen chair across from Carly and sat on it. Go ahead, she said as she set her elbows on the table and placed her chin on her clasped hands. I had therapy today, you know. I told you all about it. Right, I knew that. Well, Dr. Hayes brought in this specialist, this Slovak guy. He hypnotized me and said I should relax and see where my mind would take me. One moment I was in Hayes's office, and the next, I ended up in Germany. I went back to when I was 15. I ended up in Ramstein. The day my brother died... I found myself on the playground, and then I was in the marsh, standing by the kickball. I saw what I thought were Artie's footprints, but they were too big. You're losing me, Megan said. I was having a hard time walking through the mud, so I decided to step into what I thought were Artie's tracks. Okay. Don't you see? I was stepping into footprints that were much larger than mine. My feet fit inside them. Artie's prints would have been much smaller. Megan's jaw dropped. Damn, I see what you're saying. Someone had to be carrying Artie. That's exactly what I'm saying. Some son of a bitch killed my brother. It looked like he drowned, but if he did, someone else did it. It wasn't an accident. Someone killed him and left him in the water like a piece of trash. He was murdered. 
I realized that when Dr. Slovak brought me back to consciousness and started asking questions about what happened. What did Hayes say? He acted interested and surprised. They both did. That's not the worst of it. I left my cell phone in Dr. Hayes' office. It fell out of my pocket, and when I went back to get it, I heard Hayes talking to someone on the phone. He was talking about me. Well, how do you know? Because he was saying she and was discussing my session. I heard him say she had no clue we knew her brother was murdered. Slovak is a pro and played along with it. Carly picked up her notebook. I wrote down some other things I heard him say. Like what? Tell the team we're on schedule to have the answers by the end of the month. Megan considered this, then said, Let's look at this from a different angle. You heard him say that you have no clue. Maybe he was just telling a colleague that you're trying to remember. But at this point, you don't have a clue. That's a possibility. Carly rubbed her brows. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I don't know. And the second thing, Megan said, the thing about the answer by the end of the month, maybe he meant that if you get the right answers and your memory comes back, you'll be able to go home by the end of this month. Wouldn't that be awesome, Carly said. Megan motioned with her chin towards Carly's notes. Anything else? Carly did one last scan. She checked off each point she wanted to remember and then looked up from her pad. That's about it. Those memories were vivid. I think you better keep what you heard to yourself. If Hayes thinks you're becoming paranoid, he'll never let you out. Carly nodded. I agree. I have another session day after tomorrow. Let me see how it goes. I'll keep you posted. And there you have it. Don't forget, on Monday, we have Episode 3 of Operation Arrow Fletcher by James Burns. To check out more of my work, go to my website at kathycolas.com. That's C-A-T-H-I-C-O-L-A-S dot com. If you're an author looking to turn your book into an audiobook, email me at kathycolis at gmail.com. Let's talk. And if you like the podcast, please leave a review or share it on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on Monday.